Before we start, a quick warning. During this episode, you'll hear several uses of a racial slur. So, listener discretion is advised. Previously, on Murder, Etc. Marianne said, I don't want you to go. She said, I want you to stay here with me. I told her, I'm going to go ahead. After that, her feelings changed. You look at Charles's mugshot from when they brought him in on January 31st, 1975. He's got like a 10 inch afro and a beard. And then you look at the composite sketch and it looks like Frank Sinatra. There were really two Greenvilles here in the up part of the state. If you lived out in Botany Woods or out the Augusta Road area, you didn't know, didn't see, or have really affected by the fact that at night, the streets of Main Street turned into drug dealing places, houses, uh, places of prostitution. I can't even go home in peace because you sit there and you think about it. The slightest little mistake, the slightest little bobble, it can be a tail light out. It can be anything and they stop you. You know, uh, let me see your ID. Oh, okay. Are you that Charles Wakefield? You see what I'm saying? You're afraid they might try to do something. I'm afraid. There are a lot of ways to get to Greenville. You can land at Greenville Spartanburg Airport. You can come across Interstate 85. You can come up or down I-26 and hit 385. Or you can come in on the Amtrak Crescent, a rail line that stops in the heart of the city at a station on Washington Street. Man, this was like jumping. I can't imagine Washington Street jumping. No, it was <laughs> jumping. I'm telling you, man, they had a little juke. They had the juke joint and the pool room side by side. Wait a minute. Not right here. A little bit further down here because it was kind of like go down. Right down in there probably. Yeah, right there. But once you're in the heart of Greenville, if you want to move around on wheels, you'll probably need a four-wheeled vehicle of some sort. And this is not where I expected myself to be on an autumn afternoon in Greenville, South Carolina. We're going to stop right here for a second. That was my aunt's house. That's why we're right there. I wonder if there's anybody there. I don't know. Unhook me. Let me go see. Right. Be careful. <laughs> I Driving my truck through the West Greenville streets with a convicted double murderer sitting in the cab next to me, talking about old times, and occasionally me talking to myself. Wouldn't really have expected this, but Charles just hopped out of the truck and uh, he's going up to fairly beaten down old place, sort of standing up against the fence and looking over at it. It's interesting to see his face. This wasn't how I'd planned my autumn at all. It was October, and in Greenville, October means fall for Greenville, a huge street festival with food and drinks and music, stages all over downtown, and traffic. Lots of traffic. I was in it with one of Greenville's most notorious men. I'm about to make a mistake I don't want to make. Get What's that? And fall for Greenville traffic. I don't want to do that. No, you don't want to fall for Greenville. Because ain't no telling what's happening down there. Downtown Greenville traffic can be like a rip current. You put your nose in it, and then you're either swimming with it or drowning in it. And during fall for Greenville, that rip current is stronger than ever. So it was slow going. They got people look like they going somewhere. It's all going to fall for Greenville. Oh, they got a, Yeah, that's where, that's where all of these people are going. We're like close. Yeah. To fall for Greenville. 
Well, no. I mean, they, they got to walk a long ways, but the parking is, uh, is a is bit of a mess. Through the roof. Yeah. On this day, Charles Wakefield Jr. and I were an odd-looking pair. A middle-aged white guy in a Ford F-150 pickup and a 60-something black man who, despite growing up just a couple of miles away, had never even heard of Fall for Greenville. He was a man struggling to explain just how different everything once looked along Main Street. Back before he went to death row. Once you got past the um, Army-Navy store down Pillington, that was like the strip. You know, it had the girls, they had the bars and the girls, and the other little stuff that you could get. I had one guy just call it sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's what it, that's what it was. That's what it was. I had asked Wakefield to join me to clear something up, to show me exactly where he says he was on the afternoon someone killed Rufus and Frank Looper. Before we got that far, we had to go with the current, into Greenville's Tony downtown, among the people there to have fun. Main Street, they had stores, but when you got down there where they had the Greenville News, that's when it sort of like tailed off. Yeah, they had the Army Navy store. Army Navy store been there forever. That's basically, you know, all they had. I was with a man who was trying to balance his desire to get out of town by dark with his fascination about how much effort the developers had put in to make sure the new downtown still looked like the old downtown Greenville. They still got the same old storefronts and everything. I guess I guess it was to the advantage to keep them. We cut around the crowd and down some back streets where I could drive without getting pushed by traffic. And Charles Wakefield, as he does, could reminisce about food. I used to go up there all the time and get the grilled cheese and the pickles and the potato chips. You know, that was a little combo. You know, you get the grilled cheese, pickles, and potato chips. Few people think much about what causes them to remember one thing over another. On this October day, I was struck about how every turned corner was another memory for Wakefield. Memories that often touched his taste buds before coming to rest in his brain. I used to love to get that. That chicken dinner with the french fries, they do slaw. <laughs> they had some good slaw. That slaw, man, was like, everybody can't do slaw. Yeah, everybody can't do slaw. I think they chop it up too fine yeah. or whatever. Slaw chopped up too fine. Watery, mayonnaise -y. It's the worst. I found myself as a man who appreciates a good slaw, not only nodding, but almost excitedly agreeing with Wakefield, ignoring for too long a second that the man next to me was not just a person with whom I shared a very serious opinion about coleslaw, but also a man, a jury convicted of two brazen and heartless murders. A man talking with childish glee about his aunt's cooking. She would cook a cake. She would cook a chocolate cake, a real chocolate cake with real chocolate. Today's Greenville kids know there's a beautiful minor league ballpark downtown, a smaller replica of Fenway Park. They know about the lush and gorgeous Falls Park, and the Liberty Footbridge that spans the Reedy River Falls. Wakefield knows it differently, and these memories aren't quite as innocent as chocolate cake. And even where they got the park at back, back in the day, they didn't have anything down there. You know, they had the waterfall, and you could just basically had the steps that go down, and that was all they had. And we used to go down there, smoke reefer, drink a couple of cold ones, hang out. We'd be nobody down there. To anyone watching us drive by, there were only two men in the cab of the truck. But anyone listening closely knew there were more. There was a reporter trying to figure out a story. And there was Charles Wakefield, the child, and Charles Wakefield, the hungry teenager, and Charles Wakefield, the man police and a famous prosecutor said was a cold-blooded murderer.
I developed a, what we called a police advisory concept. Of the three men responsible for building the case against Wakefield, one-time prosecutor Billy Wilkins is the only one still alive. So that solicitor's office and the few assistants I had then, on major cases, we encouraged the deputies, the investigators, the detectives to call us. And we would come out and not be involved in investigating, but merely providing legal assistance. Voters elected Wilkins as 13th Circuit Solicitor in November 1974. Soon after, he set up shop in a little room in the basement of the Greenville County Courthouse, giving cops legal lessons so they wouldn't blow his cases. He taught search and seizure, Fifth Amendment, and Miranda. Because I learned early on that mistakes made at the crime scene are going to haunt you in the courtroom. So we want to avoid mistakes up front so we don't have obstacles to overcome, legal obstacles, evidentiary obstacles in the courtroom. Today it's old hat, but back then, I mean, deputies, detectives, they didn't think about Miranda, even though it had been on the books for a while. It never was being enforced until about the early 70s. The courts began to really bear down on things like the fruit of the poisonous tree and stuff like that. It was foreign to most detectives. Over the years, Wilkins tried countless high-profile cases, and one of the biggest happened just as he was taking office, the midday murder of the county's top narcotics cop, Frank Looper, and the cop's father, Rufus. Greenville police assigned two detectives to the case, Officer of the Year, Jim Christopher, and Mike Bridges, the future Greenville police chief. Christopher and Bridges were assigned to work the case as they did most homicides. I worked to handle a lot of cases that they handled. They testified in many, murder cases that I prosecuted. So I got involved in this case pretty early on because Bridges and Christopher, one of them called me and they wanted me to work with them um, from a, just a legal standpoint. In earlier episodes, you heard Wilkins say, despite outcry over the years that he prosecuted the wrong man in the Luber murders case, he was still confident he was right, in part because he knows things other people don't know. The first, is a criminal Detective Jim Christopher kept out of jail, so he would work as an informant. Christopher had an informant in Greenville who dealt in stolen goods, and he was given a ride, a free ride, to some degrees, and it didn't get too out of hand, because by dealing in that element, he knew what was going on lots of times, and he would give Christopher tips. He never testified, he never came to court, Christopher never, he never came to Christopher's office. They would meet somewhere and, and do you know his name? Wilkins' question, did I know the name of Christopher Snitch, was a tough one, because I did, but there wasn't just one. Christopher maintained a small battalion of crooks he could count on if he needed help on the street. There are several. I don't know if it's Tommy Shaw or if it's uh, John Olin Butler. That's him. Yeah, I met John Olin one time and one of the, Christopher took me out, he was, we're going to talk about something. I forgot another case. Anyway, within 24 hours of the Loopers being murdered, John Olin told Christopher Wacky Wakefield, the word on the street is it's Wacky Wakefield. Well, you can't base a lot on that, but it does give some direction in the investigation. As Wilkins tells it, John Olin Butler was the first person to speak Wakefield's name to Detective Christopher. And as Wilkins tells it, Butler tipped Christopher in the first 24 hours. We have to take Wilkins' word on this, because the voluminous police file barely mentions Butler at all. The closest thing to a match in the file, an unnamed informant who tipped Christopher to Wakefield on February 6th, a week after the murders. 
For years afterward, Wakefield's family would talk about John Owen Butler, claiming Butler had told them he had evidence to help Wakefield's case, but that he was run out of town before Wakefield's family ever saw that evidence. The timing, and Wakefield family claims aside, Detective Bridges and Christopher Winnow looking for material to build a case on Charles Wakefield Jr. So what Christopher did in Bridges, they went out to the neighborhood where Wacky lived, and they were trying to find somebody who saw him coming from the direction of the loopers, and they weren't able to. But they did talk to the next door neighbor who was a retired school teacher. And Christopher told me, we knocked on her door. She came to the door. We said, we'd like to talk to you about Charles Wakefield. And she said, I can't talk to you, I'm afraid, but I'll meet you today at four o'clock. And she gave some off-premise address that she would meet him. And she did. And she said, I'll talk to you, but you have to promise me you'll never repeat, never use what I say. And Christopher said, he gave his word he wouldn't. She says this, the day the sirens went off, hear her say, that afternoon she's sitting on her front porch, as she did most every afternoon as a retired school teacher. She was, she was a very nice person. Uh, I even talked to her one time, but I, just to kind of end the investigation, I want to get a clear picture. Wilkins says this nameless retired school teacher was a linchpin in his belief that Wakefield was the killer. Anyway, she says that that afternoon, Mrs. Wakefield came over to her front porch, as was not unusual, and sat down and they began to chat. And she says, I'm so worried about Charles. And why is that? And Mrs. Wakefield said, because you remember all those sirens going off this morning? Yes. Well, Charles runs in the back door of the house while I'm in the kitchen. And he said, Mama, anybody ask where I am, tell them I slept late. I've been in the, in the bedroom all morning. And he, then he goes in, and she says he changes his clothes, and he leaves. And I'm just worried about it. Well, that's, that's pretty, pretty good evidence, you know. While it might have seemed to Wilkins like pretty good evidence, it wasn't trial evidence at all. Because that retired school teacher never appeared in court. And Wilkins, at trial? never brought up what she said, not even when Wakefield's stepmother testified under oath and directly contradicted the story on which Wilkins based his belief. Because she testified at trial just what, just what Wakefield asked her to testify to, alibi that he was in the bed at her home all night. And I looked at Christopher. He said, no, I gave him a word, don't do it. You know, because I could have I could have broken it off in, 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 at that time. Wilkins said he went light in his cross-examination so Christopher could keep his word. So it was not as effective a cross-examination, but it was it was it was the one that was in keeping with what Christopher had, had agreed to. And uh, as far as her. Well, that's number one. If that story was number one, just wait until you hear about number two, a much longer story we'll get to in another episode. In the first hours after the murders, police got tips that didn't mention Wakefield. One informer told cops to look for someone named Derek Smith and six other black men riding around in two cars and talking about a job they were about to pull. Officer Melvin Croft got another tip. Detectives should start looking at a man named George Syracuse. Within a few days, the list of suspects grew so big and sometimes strange, it was impossible to dig in every one. But on the night of January 31st, police were looking for someone they could arrest right then. Someone 
with a warrant. And they had one on Charles Wakefield. Me and Dexter, about three weeks earlier, had uh, had been on Pack, Pack Street fooling around. If you've listened to all the episodes up to this point, you might remember a choice Wakefield made one night. One that haunted him. The night his cousin Dexter wanted Wakefield to go out for beers. And Marianne said, I don't want you to go. She said, I want you to stay here with me. I told her, I'm going to go ahead. After that, her feelings changed. She changed. I guess she figured that other things and other people were more, more important than her. And she said, hell with it. After Wakefield made the decision to go out with Dexter, Wakefield kept doing it. And the consequences began to stack up. On the night of January 3rd, 1975, Four weeks before the murders, Wakefield and his cousin Dexter were out drinking at a house on Pack Street when up walked a man named Furman Wakefield. Furman wasn't kin to Charles. They just shared a last name. And what started the fight between Dexter and Furman? No one can seem to remember. But Charles says he got in the middle of it. Dexter went picking, picking with Furman Wakefield. Him and Furman, then me taking up for him. Taking up for him and uh, he took a warrant out You'll hear people from back then talk about this kind of thing a lot. One guy gets mad at another guy, and the best retribution is to go down to the police station and swear out a warrant. That's what Furman Wakefield did. Police did nothing about the warrant on January 3rd, 4th, or on any of the days in the four weeks that led up to the murders. But on the night of January 31st, they pulled the warrant, signed by another future police chief, Willie Johnson. The warrant that came out of a scuffle at the liquor house was all the justification the police needed to haul Wakefield off to jail. A month later, yeah. about some crap with Dexter. Dexter started some stuff again, and uh, they took me in there. What happened in jail that night? He broke the skin on his knuckles, hit me in the chest with the back of his hand. Boom, 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 boom. You did it, you did it, you this, you this. It's a longer story one that still haunts Wakefield, and one I'll tell another day. Because that story begins a different part of Wakefield's life, and doesn't tell the story I wanted to hear when Wakefield climbed into my truck. If he wasn't on Pendleton Street killing the loopers, well, where was Wakefield that day? Like the most normal day in my life. Wakefield remembers that day as mundane, waking up with that nagging feeling in his head that said he needed to get on the ball and make something of his life. I was getting tired of hanging around in Greenville. Greenville seemed like it was going nowhere. I had a cousin that was a, uh, a Marine. He was hoping to follow in his family's footsteps and go into the service. And in the meantime, he wanted to find another job. I was trying to get a job and I said, well, you know what, I'll go to the uh, employment office and sign up for my benefits. He hitched a ride downtown with a guy he knew, got a cup of coffee at a diner called Boston Lunch, while he waited for the unemployment office to open. Stayed up there for a couple of hours, did the uh, application for the benefits and stuff like that. Did some searches for jobs and stuff. You know, it just seemed like at that time, everybody was like sort of almost looking for a job. There's a supplemental report filed eight months after the murder in which officer Doug Ross tries to verify Wakefield's claim that he was at the unemployment office. Ross found proof Wakefield was there at 10 a.m. Although in the report, Ross mistakenly refers to Wakefield as Charles Barksdale Jr. 
the social security number in Ross's report, does belong to Wakefield. After the unemployment office, next up on Wakefield's to-do list, get his taxes done. And he wanted his cousin Rebecca to help. Rebecca, she was just this super intelligent girl. She was very smart. And she did taxes and stuff. And I was like hounding her, hounding her. I want you to fill my income tax out for me so I can get that little money back. Before he headed to Rebecca's house, Wakefield says he went home briefly, went to shoot a couple of games of pool, met with several other people along the walk, and then went back to his house. I went back home because I had uh, my uh, W-2s and my other forms on the mantelpiece. I never will forget that. And then, you know, the little path, what I showed you, that I always took, I went down my little path. While we were driving, Wakefield had shown me how he navigated out of West Greenville toward his aunt's house. Washington Street, Southern Side, all that's all the same thing. But back in the day, they called it Southern Side. No, don't, don't ask me why. I guess because Southern Railroad. Oh, okay. There you go. That makes sense. Southern Railroad, better known today as Norfolk Southern with a line of tracks that runs right through the heart of Greenville's traditionally black neighborhoods. We lived there for like 10 or 12 years or whatever. That was the cut. Cut right between these houses, hit the railroad tracks. And that take you right over? Two. See the railroad tracks right there? Yep. Cut through. They probably still cutting through there. He'd cut through the houses, down the Southern Railroad tracks. He talked with more people along the way, and then he headed toward Frank Street where two of his aunts lived. All of my aunts, we were very close. And I would talk to them, you know, my inner circle, you know, which was my father and my stepmom, you know. I didn't talk to them like I would talk to Eddie's mom, Inez, and Annie Mae. Wakefield said his aunt had asked him for some help. And he had an ulterior motive, one that, again, involved a growling stomach. This is where a rug shampooing machine would become a very odd, but very important part of Wakefield's alibi. The day before, Aunt Inez told me, so I'm gonna get a rug shampoo. I want you to come by here and shampoo my rug. I'll fix you something to eat. As always was the deal, you yeah, know, I would yeah. do chores and she would fix me food because I was always hungry. And so that was the plan. Head to his aunt's house on Frank Street, get his taxes done, shampoo a rug, get something to eat. This is what Wakefield said he was doing when somebody was shooting the loopers. I helped to shampoo the rug in the living room, the cousin doing the income tax, a mom in there fixing me something to eat. If it all sounds incredibly boring, that's because it was. It was all very normal, up until they had to rush the rug shampooing machine back before they got charged for another day. A friend named Bill Butler, someone Wakefield called Boo Boo, had rented the machine for them. Boo Boo drove, and to get to the store, they had to drive down Pendleton Street. And there were all these police all over the place. And we were like, what the heck is going on? It was like Pendleton, that end of Pendleton Street was full of police. And we went on down the street to uh, the little place where you rent the shampoo from. And then we uh, took the shampoo back. After that, Wakefield says his cousin begged off doing his taxes. And uh, Rebecca told me, well, you know, I'll just do these another day because she had a little boyfriend with her. And then they dropped me off uh, uh, in West Greenville. Wakefield says he shot some more pool and then went to visit his estranged wife. And even now, he just doesn't get how people would believe a guy trying to get a job at the unemployment office would put robbery and murder on his to-do list. Then I left and went to the employment office, which doesn't add up to be 
not if we we're gonna go rob people, but all of a sudden I'm gonna go look for a job and do unemployment in the midst of robbing people. It all sounds very convenient. Wakefield's alibi is almost too perfect. It was something that attorney Eric Gottlieb noticed early on in his investigation. I mean, how often do you find a well-developed alibi in, in a case that's rejected? When I was practicing, I, I did not see it. It was very cut and dry. Either he, he did it or he did not do it. And the notion that he would have this elaborate alibi was very striking to me. Charles Wakefield Jr. was not the only one who offered proof of the alibi. Shedrick Puddin Belcher testified he gave Charles a ride to the unemployment office. Blair Griffin, an employee of the unemployment office, said Wakefield originally had an appointment on January 21st, but the office was so busy, Wakefield was told to return on January 31st, between 10.20 a.m. and 10.40 a.m. And according to their records, someone claiming to be Wakefield had signed in on that day at that time. Wakefield's stepmother testified she saw him at her house. A man named James Brown said he saw Wakefield walk into his aunt's house around 1.30 p.m. and then leave in Bill Butler's car later that afternoon. Wakefield's cousin said Wakefield was at her house around 2 p.m. that day. His aunt Inez testified to the same thing. Bill Butler testified Wakefield was with him and Rebecca when they went to return the carpet cleaning machine. An employee of the company where Butler rented the shampooer said the machine was returned on the 31st. All of those things, in addition to the follow-up report from the police officer at the unemployment office and a receipt we found in the police file showing the machine Bill Butler rented came back on the 31st. Friends, family, bureaucrats, shopkeepers, reports, and receipts, all backing up where Wakefield says he was on the day of the Looper murders. It wasn't enough to save Wakefield. That was what we normally do every day. And, and, and that particular day, I was there to get the income tax done. And her mom had asked me to uh, shampoo the rug in the living room. You got to go on. You need to go on and shampoo that rug in the living room because I done rented that uh, I done, I done rented that shampoo. And we got to get it back before 4 o'clock so that we don't have to pay for another extra day. And then that's, that's what I was doing. Somebody was doing whatever they do up there on Pendleton Street, and I was doing a rug. That is how Wakefield remembers it all. Somebody was doing whatever they were doing in the Looper garage, and he was doing the rug. That was his day. And his night? He went to be with Marianne and his daughter. Marianne's sister called late that night, said the police had come looking for Wakefield. She said the police is over her mom's house, and they're looking for you. Marianne asked me, she say, why is the police looking for you? And I told her, I said, you know what? I said, I haven't did anything. Tell them where I'm at. I'm like sitting, you know. I had on one of those little silk t-shirts. Back in the day, we used to wear those matching silk uh, t-shirts and underwear. Mm -hmm. And I had them a little... Uh, had on my little pants and whatever. And uh, I'm sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. I said, no, people ain't coming. I think I waited like 20, 30 minutes. Then they finally, boom, 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 boom. I went down there and opened the door. And they like, boom, come in the door. Like 12 of them, you know. Uh, your name so-and-so? I said, yeah. They had me like, <laughs> you know, 
They had me all jacked up. Wakefield begged to put his pants on, and they let him. But when it came time to find something to cover up on top, the police were ready to rush him out the door. And Wakefield spotted a sweater his mother-in-law had left behind. She had blue sweater, which was her mom's button-up sweater. And I said, can I at least get this sweater? So they took me to jail with her mom's sweater on. And that was how Wakefield's normal day of errands and chores turned into the last normal day of his life. As we rode through the Greenville streets, Charles Wakefield's eyes would sometimes fixate on specific places as he tried to remember what they looked like 40 years ago. And then his eyes would go somewhere else. Not a place, but a time. If you go across Street, Queen Street at that time, they had apartments, but they were predominantly uh, white. And they had a great big field where we used to go play football at. We played sandlot football. I'm going up to the field, see if they playing, because I'm going to play football. And this little girl, she was like, she was like five or six years old. She looked up at me, she said, Hey, nigger. I couldn't say a word. I could not say a word. That little girl said that to me. She said, hey, nigger. So pretty and clear. I couldn't say a word. How could you? I couldn't say a word. I couldn't say it. He was a child. He was a child. As Wakefield told the story about the little girl, we started making our way to the edges of places Charles Wakefield used to roam places bordered by landmarks that still stand. Wakefield stopped telling his story about a forgotten sandlot, distracted by a well-known football stadium just outside the passenger window. You know, just Serene Stadium. Up until 1980, Serene Stadium was the home of the Furman Paladin football team. It's still home to the Greenville High School Red Raiders. Sheriff Johnny Mac Brown played on the field. Stadium can seat 15,000 people. Oh, that thing is little. It looks like it looks like it's it looks like you know what? It used to be so big, <laughs> and now it's so little. You be looking at Panther Stadium all the time, you know. Wakefield was barely into his twenties when he went to prison. He's now sixty-five, and some of the things he remembers is huge. Now look tiny in his old eyes, eyes that quickly return to the past, and that little white girl. How one word from her mouth took all the words out of his. I just kept on going. But I understood, I understood that she was saying what she was taught. Even then, I understood that she, she wasn't capable of thinking like that. Right. She was just repeating what she done heard, what she was taught. And when they get to be young like that, and some, some of their behavior, or some of the things that they're saying, is what they're taught. That's not their idea. He paused, and then just like that, snapped back to his life today. So where are we going now? Well, I was thinking... Uh... We had crossed Church Street, leaving downtown and West Greenville in the rear view, and entered one of the neighborhoods Billy Wilkins talked about when he spoke of two Greenvilles. There were really two Greenvilles here in the up part of the state. If you lived um, out in Botany Woods or out the Augusta Road area, you, you, didn't, you didn't know, you didn't see, or have really affected by the fact that at night, the streets of Main Street turned into drug dealing places, houses, uh, places of prostitution. I ain't really fooling around down here too much. This was sort of uh, mostly affluent white. It's still affluent white. <laughs> huh, down here? Yeah, oh yeah, it's still. It's in this neighborhood, the $300,000 homes are fixer-uppers, 
and million-dollar homes are just a few lots away from a neighborhood that's still considered one of the bad parts of town. Maybe it's this way everywhere, but in the South, it's always amazed me how close the so-called good neighborhoods sit to the places good neighbors would be afraid to enter. The phenomenon is nothing new to the South, something Wakefield made clear, his eyes going distant again, ignoring the old money mansions and instead going back to West Greenville, still trying to see the invisible dividing line between white and black neighborhoods. It was sort of an understanding that it was certain parts of uh, town that uh, you didn't uh, you didn't go to. The other side of Woodside Mill, uh, they called it a Berea, part of Berea. But on this side, it was sort of like West Greenville. You know, you just didn't, you just didn't go in Berea. You know, you can go through there in the daytime, you know, but you didn't go over there hanging out. What do you, I mean, what, what was the penalty for that? Well, I mean, if you did go over there, what was going to happen? I mean, anything might happen to you. You know, at, at night, at night, people do things they don't do in the daytime. I sat at a stop sign waiting for the traffic to clear, my turn signal clicking. And Wakefield, remembering a night, he made the mistake of trying to walk home toward the railroad tracks at night through a neighborhood where he was not welcome. Three white guys. They like popped up and one of them said to me, nigga, what you doing over here? I said, I live over here. And then uh, one of them said to me, said, nigga, say, you better catch that rabbit. I ran towards the railroad track. I grew up with people who hunted rabbits. I've lived among gamblers who watched dogs chase a stuffed rabbit around a track. But I had no frame of reference for what it meant for a black man walking through a white neighborhood in early 1970s Greenville to hear, you better chase that rabbit. What's that mean? I, I don't know that phrase. Huh? I don't even know what that means. It so, means it means what it says. It means like there's a pretend rabbit that you better run after. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that what it means? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what it means. <laughs> That's what it means. I mean, you know, it's not a phrase. That's what they said. Yeah. I mean, it's not I a phrase. So that wasn't something that you heard all the time. I mean, it, it, it wasn't that night. I, that was the only time I ever heard it in my life. And, you know, I didn't go back up there no more. Even with his keen memory and forgiving spirit, it was hard to explain those lines. Lines that separate a white neighborhood from a black one. Lines that mark where one man can walk and another man should run. Lines between the dots a prosecutor connected to put Wakefield in prison. Lines a jury couldn't see that marked Wakefield's path through Greenville on the day of the Looper murders. And the line as straight and sure as a railroad track from Greenville to death row in Columbia. It was all confounding to Charles Wakefield just as much as how downtown Greenville had evolved from a forbidden place where a junkie could score or a John could pick up a street girl. Like those new buildings that looked old and the old ones that looked new. It was very hard to see if this was one Greenville we were traveling around or two Greenvilles that had been decorated to look like one. Because four decades later, there are still black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods. There are still allegations of injustice and Charles Wakefield Jr., no matter how free he might look, is still, under South Carolina law, a double murderer. My turn signal was still clicking, this time ironically in the background. Because no matter which way I turned, Wakefield looked out my windshield and saw everything was just as it always had been. Wow. 
how 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 little things have changed. To see a map of the path Wakefield says he took that day, police witness statements, and the receipt from that carpet machine rental, go to our website where we have a section called The File. That's where we're storing the documents that back up our reporting and murder, etc. Also, check out the In the News section for a look at the production of Murder, etc. Thanks to Kirsten Glavin, Doug Urich, and WSPA-TV for putting that story together. To get all of it, just go to murderetcpodcast.com. That's Murder, E-T-C, podcast. Com. Finally, a programming note before we finish up the week. The last seven weeks have been very, very busy, and I've heard a lot of things from a lot of people, and I'm working to incorporate what we've learned into our upcoming episodes. With that in mind, Murder Etc. is taking a very quick production break. We hope to drop a couple of bonus interviews in the meantime, so keep an eye on our website, Facebook, and Twitter pages for those. And we'll be back on April 30th with the next part of the story. <laughs> How the police put the investigation together about the other man police worked just as hard to build a case against. How the organized crime racket went wild in 1975. How Greenville began to spiral out of control. And the wild, woolly, and weird characters and killers in the middle of it all. Could you tell me a little bit about that guy and uh, his association with Foster? Uh, you must be talking about Fast Eddie. <laughs> Fast Eddie Williamson. He was from Greenville. He was a uh, bank robber. Some of these people just simply could not resist crime and seemed to overlook the fact that there was a high penalty for making a mistake. Luke had gotten up, I mean, was repackaging the drugs at his house with his mother. They were putting it in capsules and stuff that was stolen. My phone rings at home and my uh, daughter answers the phone, my nine-year-old daughter. This voice says, you know, if your husband runs the sheriff, you will be killed and your two children. Well, of course, she went berserk. My wife tried to get me to, don't run. I said, no, I'm going to run. I'm not going to let something like that scare me. He was a very colorful character, uh, a little a little kooky, and he carried on a, a campaign against the sheriff of Greenville County publicly for a long time and, and used very, very unorthodox methods uh, to do it. The next thing I remember about him, he was t had this motor home and he was telling me about making this sex machine. So he had some kind of jigsaw. He made it and made a saddle like a horse saddle. <laughs> Barbara was a, a go-go dancer. She had had, to say the least, breast enhancement surgery. But to me, she was pleasant. This female said to me, country is at our home. We're leaving in about 30 minutes to go to Atlanta. Ballard is driving, I'll be in the passenger seat, Country will be in the back seat. He's armed with a rifle and a pistol. I was hesitant about giving his name, and he does have connections on the outside. I'm talking about on the criminal side. At least one person he's connected with. Oh, man. That's hard. That's, that's opening another door right there I'm not sure I want to open. All of that and a lot more when Murder Etc. returns April 30th.